Okay, so last time we talked about this uh, interesting story about how God described, hey, I've done all these miracles for these people. Miracle, miracle, miracle. And uh, yet, they still don't trust me. And we drew the parallel with Jesus after he resurrected Lazarus and said basically the same thing. They don't trust me. There's no faith despite all of the miracles and some of the interesting implications there. But now I want to go on in the story here in Numbers 14. So God would say, you know what, you people, I can't, I haven't won you to trust me, so you're going to have to wander in the desert for 40 years. Okay, and this is here what happens next. Moses talking to God. So now, Lord, I pray, show us your power and do what you promised when you said, the Lord am not easily angered, and I show great love and faithfulness and forgive sin and rebellion. Yet I will not fail to punish children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. I hope most of you were here when we talked about that for the sins of their parents. And now, Lord, according to the greatness of your unchanging love, forgive, I pray, the sin of these people, just as you have forgiven them ever since they left Egypt. That's interesting. Just as you have forgiven them ever since they left Egypt. And of course, the story of this brief journey out to Mount Sinai, hasn't it just been rebellion, 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 rebellion? And uh, here Moses would say, just as you've been forgiving these people ever since they left Egypt. All right, so how does God respond? First of all, it's interesting who's asking for forgiveness to the people. The people are rebellious in this story. I mean, there's no indication that they are really asking God for forgiveness. This is Moses' request. Okay, but here's God's response. The Lord answered, I will forgive them as you have asked. But I promise that as surely as I live and as surely as my presence fills the earth, none of these people will live to enter that land. They have seen the dazzling light of my presence and the miracles that I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness. But they have tried my patience over and over again and have refused to obey me. They will never enter the land, which I promised to their ancestors. None of those who have rejected me will ever enter it. And we read last time that no one over the age of 25, none of the men except for Caleb and Joshua, did enter the promised land. They all died. So what I find interesting here is God declaring, I forgive these people. All right? But yet, what does that say then about forgiveness? Just some, some questions here. Again, did the people ask to be forgiven? No, this was Moses' request. Maybe that brings up an interesting um, additional question. Would God have forgiven them had Moses not asked for their forgiveness? Well, let's think some other questions. Were they forgiven? Well, we have God's own words. I will forgive them. Okay, so these were a group of forgiven people. How many of them entered the promised land? Well, essentially none of them. Okay, these forgiven people. We know they all died in the 40 years wandering. Um, now, we can't answer this question, but we can just uh, consider. And uh, next time, we'll talk about Korah's rebellion, and we'll discuss the mutiny that went on during those 40 years. It's just uh, amazing. But, um, you know, how many of those forgiven people will arrive in heaven? Well, we don't know the answer to that question, but uh, we might just suggest by the story that there were some, uh, still some uh, stubborn rebels. And in fact, when God finally does bring them into the land of Canaan, we'll come to this later, he says, it's not really that you're any better, but for the sake of my name, we're going in anyway. It's not really that you people uh, are much better than you were. 
And could we ask this question? Does the fact that they were forgiven, would that indicate a proper adjustment of their legal standing? And if our legal standing is properly adjusted, if we are forgiven, does that equate with entering the kingdom? Uh, just some questions here to think about. As so often is the case, the story often challenges our theological assumptions. And since about 80% of the Bible is a story, we need to read the story and see, does that fit with the conclusions that we've come to? Well, we need, I think, to, to answer this, go all the way back to the beginning. Okay, what happened at the tree? Remember when sin entered the human family, and we described what happened, that the serpent came and he presented lies about God. Okay, you really can't trust God. He hasn't told you the truth. And the, the significance then of eating the fruit, which almost certainly wasn't an apple, who knows what it was, but that it was internalizing the lie. It was believing the false things that were said about God. And immediately what happened? In Adam and Eve, we see them hiding in the bushes. Okay, God comes for a walk. They're terrified. They're trying to cover themselves up with fig leaves. They're feeling guilt and shame. Okay, so I guess we could ask the question, who changed in that moment? Did God's attitude change toward them? Or did they change? Okay, and how would forgiveness play into all of this? Uh, I think a very telling verse here in Isaiah 59 describes the sin problem. Who does sin change? Don't think that the Lord is too weak to save you or too deaf to hear your call for help. But your sins have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Kind of interesting. We just read God is not deaf. He can hear. Okay, but your sins. And notice in this verse again, who is changed? Okay, our sins have caused a separation. And I think what is being described is we really have a warped, distorted uh, picture of God and his attitude toward, towards us because of the sin problem. There's guilt, there's fear. All of the things that Adam and Eve experienced in the garden are a consequence to us okay, because of uh, the sin problem. Uh, this is a verse, it's, it's too big to... Uh, Describe it's, it's really quite wonderful, I think. But in 1 John 3, I think kind of coming back to this same uh, issue. If our conscience condemns us, if because of this sin problem in our sinful, rebellious separation from God, if our conscience condemns us, which it does. I mean, don't we? What's the natural thing when we do something wrong? Boy, we feel guilt and condemnation. If our conscience condemns us, now here's a wonderful thing. We know that God is greater than our conscience. Okay, we may not feel like it. We may have a certain picture of God in that moment. God is greater than our conscience. But uh, maybe we'll come back to this verse. But describing again, we are the ones that are changed. We have warped our picture of God. Sin does that naturally. We imagine God being against us in that moment. Okay, so we have the problem here. And I guess the question would be, in that moment, in that sinful, rebellious separation from God, um, who takes the initiative at that point? Okay, but this is probably the verse that's most often used, and it would suggest that we take the initiative. But is that correct? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Okay, which would suggest 
And this is a verse we're going to come back to at the end, but would suggest here that God is waiting. He has a certain attitude, a certain disposition toward us that changes. When we confess our sins, God then will forgive us. Okay, is that really how it works? Well, let's counter that verse with another one. Romans 2.4, where Paul would say, Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? Okay, now here clearly God is initiating. It is God's kindness. It is God's patience. It is God's tolerance. It's the way he's treating you that in the more familiar version, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. But it is God's initiation, God's kindness that turns us around and in the other direction. Okay, so which is it? Um, us first asking for forgiveness or God triggering that by pouring out his kindness and love on us? Well, I think it becomes clear here as we go through um, some of this. And uh, first of all, we need to consider just the word forgiveness as it's used in the Old Testament. I'll give um, three examples here. The Hebrew word is salak. Okay, we'll give uh, three verses here describing forgiveness. First one's in, in Psalm 86. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. Okay, that's a wonderful verse. But if we look up here, the meaning here, what does this mean? The word salak. Okay, and the definition is it refers to the removal of our sense of guilt and condemnation produced by our sin. In other words, the forgiveness that God is ready, eager to pour out is to change us. Again, we have that guilt, that condemnation, the forgiveness, uh, not as a, a divine transaction, okay, but rather something uh, restorative that is happening within us as that sense of guilt and condemnation that is a result of our sin uh, has caused. Okay, another example, Isaiah 55. <clears throat> Let the wicked change their ways and banish the very thought of doing wrong. Let them turn to the Lord. And again, I would say anytime we turn to the Lord, that it is God initiating that. It is God's voice, his love, um, his kind of wooing us back to his side, that that is what causes us to turn to the Lord and notice that he may have mercy on them. Yes, turn to our God, for he will forgive generously. Again, it's a promise. He will. He would like to turn to him. He will forgive. But again, in the sense of what the word here, salak, means in this context, it is he will, uh, in that moment, in that process, the, the guilt, fear, separation that sin has caused in us uh, is removed as we're back in relationship with God again. Okay, one more in Isaiah or Nehemiah 9. <clears throat> they refused to obey. They were not mindful of your wonders that you did among them, but they hardened their necks, and in their rebellion they appointed a leader to return to their bondage. But you are God, ready to forgive, ready to heal the damage done, ready to remove that condemnation, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and did not forsake them. Okay, so again, the, the meaning of these words is, is uh, really quite significant. Uh, this reminded me of a story. I tried to find a picture here of a Mazda 626. Um, but when I was 18, uh, this was my parents' uh, family car, and I totaled it. 
and it was completely uh, neglectful on my part. I used to drive very fast uh, when I was younger, and uh, no other cars around. I mean, it was just stupid. Drove it off the road, wrecked the car. And um, so I was with a couple of my friends. It was very late at night, and uh, yeah, you can imagine, I was feeling incredibly guilty. My parents' car that they allowed me to, to use for whatever this was. And so, um, you know, we were out in the middle of nowhere. We had to lock, walk a long distance to get to some farmhouse so that I could call. And the worst thing is, uh, on top of that, I'm an hour and a half away from home, which meant somehow my parents were going to have to find a vehicle to come get me, even though I just wrecked their car. So I was feeling pretty guilty. And um, it was um, unbelievable. I called my parents, and I just remember my dad saying, we're just glad you're okay. Don't worry about it. We'll be there. We'll pick you up. Okay, forgiveness in that sense, I think, fits with what we've described here. I mean, my incredible guilt, I feel st still felt bad about it, of course, right? But it was uh, just a burden that was lifted as I saw the attitude um, that my dad had towards me in that, um, in that uh, horrible thing. So uh, there were consequences uh, that maybe I won't go through all of that. But um, anyway, it was, it was still a wonderful experience uh, overall. Now let's come to the New Testament. Uh, we have the story here in Luke that is told. Jesus tells several parables okay, that need to be seen together. The first one that he tells is about the 99 sheep and the one lost. And, and all of these describe God's way of winning people back. And of course, you know this one. He describes how God is willing to leave the 99 to go find the one that's lost. And in this case, the lost sheep knows that it's lost, right? And God is out seeking after to bring back the lost sheep. And he tells the story of a woman who has 10 coins, and she lost one of them. Okay, now, in this, in this case, the coin doesn't know it's lost. Okay, but God still is out uh, finding the coin that's lost. And then we have the story of the prodigal son. And I won't go through the whole story, but of course, you'll know in this case that God left the son out in the pig pen. Okay, had to experience this, had to learn something from this whole process. Okay, but in terms of forgiveness, what do we learn about forgiveness in the story of the prodigal son? Well, we just read the story. It's so incredible. But the man in the pig pen at last came to his senses and said, All my father's hired workers have more than they can eat, and here I am about to starve. I will get up and go to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against God and against you. I'm no longer fit to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired workers. In other words, he's working up a speech of repentance. Okay, and so he has this in mind as he's on his, on his journey. So he got up and started back to his father. He was still a long way from home when his father saw him. His heart was filled with pity. Again, the father knew he was out there. I mean, when he was a long way from home, in other words, he's just eagerly waiting for that moment. His heart was filled with pity. And he ran, threw his arms around his son and kissed him. Father, the son said, I have sinned against God and against you. I'm no longer fit to be called your son. And in the story, you really get the sense that the father is just says, okay, stop talking. And he doesn't let him go on with his story. And he says, but the father called to his servants, hurry, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger, shoes on his feet. Let's go. Let's have a, let's have a party, basically. Okay, so basically the son just turned and came back to God and he was just embraced, okay? The son didn't really have a very good picture of God, okay? He just thought, well, at least there's food there, 
Okay, but the father cuts off his speech of repentance and I think we could easily say just pours out lavish forgiveness on this case. Again, the, the kindness here of God um, poured out on the son just almost prematurely before he can go through the typical sinner's prayer and ask for forgiveness. Okay, we have a real story though, not just a parable here, but Jesus, you remember the story about how the Pharisees brought this woman as a trap, caught red-handed in the act of adultery, okay, and she's just thrown down while the men are around uh, accusing her, and you know the law of Jesus, she should be stoned to death. What do you want to do with this woman? Uh, interesting to think about what perhaps he drew with his finger in the dirt. Um, I like the interpretation that since the older men left first, that perhaps he was writing their sins in the dirt. And of course, if you're writing sins in the dirt, uh, there's not going to be any permanent record of that. Those are going to be uh, gone. A few people walk by. Um, but whatever it was that happened, these men, as they're watching Jesus write something in the dirt, they left. And uh, again, the woman, we don't have the story here that the woman is asking Jesus, please forgive me. But notice how Jesus initiates straightened up and said, where did they go? Has anyone condemned you? And the woman said, no one, sir, because they're gone. And Jesus said, I don't condemn you either. Again, did not go through what we would think of as the normal thing. I'm sorry, please forgive me for what I have done wrong. Instead, we have Jesus saying, I don't condemn you. I mean, she's caught red-handed in the act of adultery. Now, we shouldn't leave off the last part, go, from now on, don't sin, but notice how it works. It's first the kindness of God, the forgiveness of God that leads to repentance, that leads to a transformed life, that leads to a different um, behavior. Okay, I like to think that woman was changed by this whole process. All right, so coming back uh, here to this verse, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive. And now the, the Greek word here, there are um, two Greek words for forgiveness. Uh, one has to do with when we have been wronged and we are perhaps uh, resentful about it and when we let go of that. That's a type of forgiveness. There's another type of, uh, another Greek word for forgiveness here though that's, uh, uh, maybe I shouldn't try to pronounce it uh, here, but ephemi, another type of forgiveness that's used here in this verse. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And when we look up here, what is this meaning of this word? It is to send away and refers to the removal of guilt from one's own psyche, sending away guilt and pain. It's just like the Hebrew word for forgiveness, salak, which is, again, notice who is changed. We imagine forgiveness as a divine transaction. Things are shifted around, the ledgers, or something has changed uh, in heaven. But the forgiveness here, again, just like uh, in the Hebrew context, it is uh, we are the ones who are changed. Okay, our sense of guilt, condemnation, separation, all of the things that sin has caused are changed as God is able to pour out his love on us. So I would say, if we can confess our sins, uh, all true confession and turning to God is prompted by God. It is the kindness of God that would lead to that. And as soon as we turn to God, just like the prodigal son, 
our, our guilt, our condemnation is removed. And that's what uh, forgiveness means in this sense. Okay, and I think we would have to say the ultimate, talking about forgiveness, ultimate illustration of forgiveness. I mean, Jesus, what did he cry out as he died? Father, forgive them. Now, the people were not asking for forgiveness, just like the story in Numbers. No one is saying, please forgive us, Jesus. He is saying, Father, forgive them. Now, I guess which would bring up the question, were they forgiven? Uh, do we imagine the Father here being somewhat less sympathetic to those people than Jesus? Jesus said, Father, forgive them, and did the Father say, well, you're much kinder than I am, Jesus, but I can't forgive those people. Um, no, the, the Father and I are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is God. Same in heart, mind, and character as the Father. So when we hear Jesus say, Father, forgive them, um, this is a declaration of God pouring out his forgiveness, just like in Numbers, on people that aren't even asking for it. Okay, and uh, part of the problem is, uh, for all of the wonderful and good things that were accomplished in the Reformation, uh, we did very much adopt a strong legal view of understanding everything. Okay, and um, that, is, that has had some consequences, I think. That forgiveness, if forgiveness is really letting go when someone has wronged you, letting go of that. Um, some descriptions of the cross, well, let's just imagine, if you stole $5 from me, and I'm holding that against you, and then someone else pays me $5, and then I forgive you. Um, did I really forgive you? Well, I was paid my money back, but forgiveness is to let go of what we are holding against someone. Okay, so like in Numbers, we see God here pouring out forgiveness, and it did have an effect. I mean, it's changed the whole world, but look at what it did just to the captain who was there. When the captain there saw what happened, he honored God. This man was innocent, a good man, an innocent all who had come around as spectators to watch the show, when they saw what actually happened, were overcome with grief and headed home. Okay, because it is not expected that when you torture someone to death, an innocent person, that in that moment they don't cry out with anger or cry out for revenge, but instead offer forgiveness. Okay, that's rather shocking. And so uh, it would appear that a number of the people were very moved by Jesus' demonstration on the cross, forgiving in the face of such hatred. Okay, that's real forgiveness. Um, I mentioned the legal model. I think that the dominant model is really a relationship, a marriage model that's in the Bible. Yes, the legal model is there. We need to incorporate all of that, but how about a physician model? I think this actually fits quite well. Let's imagine here, we have a 55-year-old man that comes to see you after missing his last 25 appointments. Okay, I'm exaggerating, but we sometimes see patients where it's almost that extreme. And he's 20 minutes late for today's appointment. He has neglected his high blood pressure and diabetes for years. He feels guilty about it. His diet's been horrible. He's about 70 pounds overweight. He smokes three packs of cigarettes per day. Has 20, has, uh, uh, it's supposed to be two six-packs of beer per night, not 26, okay? And he hasn't taken his medications, and there's no surprise that he is feeling dizzy and has headaches, okay? And he is sitting there, as many patients do, feeling rather guilty. He's not taking care of himself. He's not doing what the doctor suggested. He's late 
He's waiting for the doctor to come into the room feeling uh, quite bad about himself. Now, how do we treat patients uh, like this? Um, I felt bad a few months ago. I had a patient right before Bible study who was 30 minutes late. I had to reschedule. So sometimes it doesn't work out. But let's imagine here you're a physician. You come in and you are gracious to this patient. He apologizes and you, you know what, that's okay. I'm just glad you're here. And uh, maybe the patient will be surprised. Maybe he's had a number of arrogant, rather rude doctors, and here you are uh, responding to his, all the things that he's done wrong and all the guilt that has come along with that. And your attitude is, you're here, finally. Now we can address these issues, we can fix your problems. Now what about forgiveness? Uh, is forgiveness the end all? We sometimes suggest that's the ultimate, to be forgiven. But imagine here in this model that you forgave the patient. It's okay, I forgive you, now go home. Patient goes home, his wife says, well, what'd they do about your blood pressure, diabetes, all that? Uh, I don't know, he forgave me. Uh, would that be, is that the end all? Uh, that is not the end all. God wants to heal us, just like a, a physician. Here, the forgiveness, the kindness of God is meant to win us to him so that he can change us. And if I could just go through this very quickly, we're intimidated by healing because it sounds like uh, perfectionism. But if we just can quickly go through the Old Testament, every single nation, uh, when they reached their end, the, the saddest words of God is, I can't heal you. There's nothing I can do for you. Um, the book of Nahum uh, describes, uh, remember Jonah went out to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, and they repented. Okay, but then later on, uh, they could no longer be won back to God, and that's the book of Nahum. And the description here, terminal diagnosis, Nahum 3, there is no remedy for your injuries, and your wounds cannot be healed. Okay, you're, there's only scar tissue left. There's nothing I can do. I can't heal you. That's the worst thing that God can say of us. What about Israel? In Hosea 7, I wanted to heal Israel, but its sins were far too great. Again, God can forgive sins. God is not a limiting factor with forgiveness of sins. What does sin do? It damages us. Your sins have destroyed you so much in this separation. I can't heal you. There's nothing I can do. Samaria is the capital of Israel. It is filled with liars, thieves, and bandits. Judah. Uh, the book of Chronicles here is the last part of the Bible here uh, historically in this story, uh, which ends with God saying, the Lord God of their ancestors repeatedly sent messages through his messengers because he wanted to spare his people in his dwelling place, but they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, made fun of his prophets until the Lord became angry with his people. He could no longer heal them. And that was the end. And they were off into Babylonian captivity. And Jeremiah, who's living in this time as the people are going out into Babylonian captivity, would describe it that way. Is there no medicine in Gilead? Are there no doctors there? Then why have my people not been healed? And later on, the Lord says to his people, your wounds are incurable, spiritual wounds. Your injuries cannot be healed. There is no one to take care of you, no remedy for your sores, no hope of healing for you. He couldn't turn them around. He couldn't change them. Okay, that's the terminal diagnosis. Other nations, same thing, Babylon. And uh, Jeremiah would describe these other nations. What's the problem? Babylon will suddenly fall and be shattered, cry for it, bring medicine for its pain. Maybe it can be healed. 
We wanted to heal Babylon, but it couldn't be healed. Egypt, same thing. People of Egypt go to Gilead and look for medicine. All your medicine has proved useless. Nothing can heal you. Okay, the, the healing model. This is uh, really what God wants to do. And of course, the people that rejected Jesus, he would quote this long passage from Isaiah, which ends with, the, uh, if they would respond, they would turn to me, says God, and I would heal them. Okay, and that was really the end of the Jewish nation. Um, you know, uh, Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans shortly after that. God couldn't heal them. There was nothing responsive in them. God couldn't change them. Do we change? Well, this is one of my favorite verses here describing, yes, we should change. The disciples who were so rebellious in the upper room, just a short time later, remember they went into the council and the people were amazed how bold Peter and John were to learn. They were ordinary men of no education. They realized then that they had been companions of Jesus. They had been changed. Okay, and so we should all be on this uh, process. But of course, what we're concerned about here is um, perfection or perfectionism, which has a very bad name. That's not what we're talking about here. But I want to bring up the most challenging verse here as we're intimidated by this. What do you think about these words? You must be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Okay, we all encouraged by that. Here it is, you must be perfect, just like your Father in heaven is perfect. What does it mean to be perfect? Um, well, as always, it's dangerous to pluck out one verse like this. We need to back up a few verses. What is perfection? as Jesus would describe perfection. So let's back up about 10 verses here in Matthew 5. Here is what perfection is. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But now I tell you, do not take revenge on someone who wrongs you. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, let him slap, slap your left cheek too. If someone takes you to court to sue you for your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if one of the occupation troops, the national enemy, the Romans, forces you to carry his pack one mile, carry it two miles. When someone asks you for something, give it to him. When someone wants to borrow something, lend it to him. You have heard that it was said, love your friends, hate your enemies. But now I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may become the children of your Father in heaven for notice, for he, God, makes his sun to shine on bad and good people alike and gives rain to those who do good and to those who do evil. And now I'm going to finish this off this time with the message translation, the rest of this passage. If all you do is love the lovable, do you expect a bonus? Anybody can do that. If you simply say hello to those who greet you, do you expect a medal? Any run-of-the-mill sinner does that. In a word, what I'm saying is grow up is how he translates it instead of be perfect, grow up. And it really does mean to mature, to be perfect. Your kingdom subjects, now live like it. Live out your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously toward others the way God lives toward you. And so I think what Jesus is saying when he says be perfect, grow up, mature, it's in this context. It really, we're, we're talking about forgiveness in a sense here. Eye for an eye, someone hits you, plucks out your eye. Do we respond in the same way? No, don't take revenge. You're hit on the cheek, turn the other cheek. If the Romans abuse you, carry your pack one mile, carry it an extra mile. 
If you're sued for your shirt, give your coat also. Give to anyone who asks. Love, do we just love friends? No, love and pray for your enemies. But here's the real punchline. For God sends rain and sun on the righteous and the unrighteous. Live the way God lives toward you. And so uh, what Jesus is really saying here is, hey, God is good to the righteous, to the unrighteous. God returns our hatred and evil with love and kindness. Be like that. And he gives a number of very specific and challenging examples. But to be perfect is really to return uh, hatred and anger from others in this way, which is not weak. I mean, is it a weakness to turn the other cheek? Is it weakness to carry the pack an extra mile? It's an aggressive action, in a sense, not meant to, you know, not meant as an angry action towards someone else, but it is quite a remarkable thing uh, to pour out that kind of forgiveness, that active um, kind of forgiveness on someone who is um, uh, abusive in this case. And so again, the point is, be like that, um, grow up. And it, so ultimately, how we treat people, the way God has treated us. So a point on that that I liked here, this um, professor from Duke said, forgiveness is about power, it's not weakness. It not only sets free the sinner from the burden of guilt, but also sets free victims from being forever defined by what has hurt them. So in other words, if you are a Jew, let's say 2,000 years ago, and the Romans are this oppressive empire, and they just pick you out and say, hey, carry our pack a mile. Okay, um, one way to deal with that is just to burn up with anger and revenge and spend your whole life, as we see just going on in the Middle East for decades, uh, just consumed with anger and hatred for that person. Another way to deal with it, though, is to refuse to allow others to define us. Okay, and when we turn the other cheek, when we carry the pack the extra mile, it really does set us free, in a sense. And it, it has the possibility of changing them. They're certainly not expecting um, that kind of a response. Uh, let me just uh, conclude. I, I wanted to finish with a, a challenging verse on this, but let me just describe briefly uh, what forgiveness is not. Um, first of all, at least uh, as we've seen in our relationship uh, with God here, that forgiveness is it something that comes after we say we're sorry? Um, what we see in these examples in the Bible, Jesus' death on the cross, the story in Numbers, is God pouring out his forgiveness, his kindness, to win us back to him. Okay, God is the initiator in this. Uh, as some have said, God is forgiveness personified. Okay, there's no limiting uh, limit to forgiveness from God's perspective. The other is to say that forgiveness equals salvation. Okay, if you uh, had crucified Jesus, you hate Jesus, and you see him offering this forgiveness, I mean, you're forgiven. He just forgave you, just like these people in the desert. Um, but forgiveness does not equal salvation. And uh, maybe an example, uh, King Manasseh, who was really a modern-day um, Saddam Hussein, Hitler, killed so many people that the streets flowed with blood. Okay, but it says in the Bible that he repented. He came back to God. Now, there's pretty good evidence, extra-biblical, that King Manasseh killed the prophet Isaiah by sawing him in half in a hollow log. Okay, so Isaiah's last memory is being sawed in half by King Manasseh. And now, you can just imagine here, Isaiah in heaven um, sees King Manasseh. 
And um, what, I mean, he'd be shocked, of course, and don't you think he'd want to turn to God and say, um, last thing I remember about him is he was cutting me in two. And uh, would it make sense for God to say, it's okay, I've forgiven him. He's still just as dangerous with a saw, but he's, he's pardoned. Um, no, forgiveness has to result in change. Manasseh is now safe with a saw. He's a new person. He has a new heart. He has a right spirit. Okay, so uh, forgiveness here is, is not the end all. The other is, does forgiveness mean that the sinful act was okay and that there are no consequences? Um, obviously not. The, the rebels in the desert, they were forgiven, but they still wandered for 40 years and died in the desert. The people at the cross were forgiven, okay, but they rejected Jesus and they suffered horrible consequences. It's not okay. Does forgiveness mean that we like and trust the person who did the horrible act? Again, obviously not. If we are dealing with a child molester or something like that, you may, in your heart, um, forgive them. You don't hold it against them anymore, but you're not going to let them watch your children or do something like that. So it doesn't mean we have to uh, necessarily like or trust the individual. And finally, I think the biggest misconception here is that forgiveness, in some sense, is weakness. And it is absolutely not. Uh, the words of Gandhi here, the weak can never forgive. Forgiveness is the attribute of the strong. All of those things we listed in Matthew, turning the other cheek, carrying the pack the extra mile, uh, that requires great strength to reveal that kind of forgiveness in the world. So next time we'll talk about Korah's rebellion in the book of Numbers. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you so much that in Jesus we see that your heart is continually abundant in love and forgiveness for us. Thank you that we see that revealed in Jesus. Please help us to be one by your kindness, um, by your forgiveness, by your love. May we continually turn and come closer and closer to you in, in this relationship with you. Amen.